Jake, welcome to Off Nominal. I've I've got two orders of business to start the two. show. Number one, we had uh, Richard, we had NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine on two episodes ago, and after that mm. one, my brother said to me, "You didn't say who you were the entire time, and I feel like you probably should <laughs> say who you were." So I'm Anthony <laughs> Colangelo, and my co-host in Vancouver is Jake Robbins. How you doing? That's order of business number one. Number two. All right. Occasionally, I have moments in my life when I think. What we do is really weird. And <laughs> recently on an, a recent episode, we were a drink or two too far in with Jason Davis and we mixed up two astronauts and then one of them corrected us on Twitter. And then we said, you know what? We should make this up to you. You should come on the show. And he said, okay, but you're going to have to wait because I'm going to the literal bottom of the ocean. So you need to wait a couple of weeks. And we said, okay, we can do with that. And here we are with Richard Garriott, Lord British himself. How are you doing, Richard? Excellent, excellent. You know, I still haven't made it to the bottom of the ocean yet, but that's another You've been topic close enough discuss. in my book. Yeah, we're going to get into that because I've got a lot <laughs> of questions about the bottom of the ocean to, to talk about today. Excellent, excellent. So yeah, you're, on, you're in Paris, so we're doing a matinee edition. We're stretching the time zones today. Uh, and I appreciate you guys uh, willing to get up early and oh. uh, not make me stay up too late. So uh, <laughs> uh, we're just just in time for cocktail hour. Yeah, what do you Paris. got over there? Yeah, what do you yeah, well, you know, So uh, uh, this is a, a drink that I learned from the little cafe that's literally just a few doors down from me. I, I don't know what they call it. Uh, I failed to write it down, but I did remember to ask how it was made uh, <laughs> because I really enjoyed it. So it's a, a mix of limoncello and prosecco. With a little bit of lime and mint. So, wow. Limoncello, Prosecco, lime and mint. Mm, it's very tasty, very refreshing, nice and summery, delicious. I am oh, super jealous of yeah. that for so many reasons. We're, we're getting outclassed <laughs> here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got? Well, so, so, and what are you drinking? So, milk in uh, the morning or? Yeah, so it is, it is 8 a.m. <laughs> uh, here in Vancouver. So, I, I, I was thinking, you know, I have drank. I'll admit it. I've had beer pretty early in the morning, but I just didn't think that this was the right. Uh, so um, I got coffee and I, I put it in my Jim Bridenstine fan club uh, mug here, but I wanted to tart it up a little bit. So um, I have this. Uh, this is a distillery in Grimsby, Ontario called Forty Creek, and they make a great whiskey. And this is a whiskey cream liqueur. And so I figured I would just, uh, you know, top up the coffee a little bit with this. And, yeah. and that way I can. I love that you're mixing it live on air too. That's yeah. fantastic. It's part, of, it's part of the magic, Anthony. Just got to stir it around a little bit. Mm. I've got two tall boys here, two pounders, both, both <laughs> relevant. Uh, so the first one I've got is called Galaxy and Comet. Let me get my focus. Oh, nice. I guess it only focuses on my face because I have face detection on. This is not, yeah. I didn't plan for this. So I got this, obviously, we're, we're in the days of a nice comet that has uh, come through the first time in a long time, something that's nice and visible. I've had horrible weather, so I have not yet seen it. It's been cloudy every night. You know why? Because I bought this new tiny telescope here that I could have for <laughs> planetary times in the city, and it's been cloudy every day since. <laughs> and the second one I got, it's called Supervillain, and this just looked so Richard Garriott that I had to just buy it for this show. <laughs> nice. That thing. Nice. Nice. That just looks Very nice. Today, so. That's great. Fantastic. <laughs> mm. So... 
Richard, our show is just a pretty laid back, casual space chat. And great. typically we come in with like, oh, we got a couple of nice topics to talk about. We have way too many stories to get to uh, of every variety. I, was, I read your book over the last week to study up oh, a little excellent. bit more. Uh, excellent. You can see right. I've got my Skylab shirt rocking today. Oh, even better. <laughs> so I want to start with Skylab because I'm a huge Skylab fan. Your dad flew on the second crewed mission, which what number did he use to refer to that? Because Two. everyone uses yeah, like, yeah. is it Skylab 4 yeah. does it go up to or does it only go up to 3? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so here's the way my family broke it down. So Skylab, Roman numeral 1, Roman numeral 2, and Roman numeral 3 were the crewed missions. But the launches were SL, uh, uh, English number 1, SL 2, 3, and 4. And so the launch of the vehicle was SL 1, SL 2 would be the first crew, SL 3 would be my dad's crew, SL 4 the final crew. So so to me, there's no uh, confusion. Yeah, that makes total how sense. To, how, do you, how do you have to write this, the, the <laughs> nomenclature? But, but you know, that's funny because like on my uh, mission patch that's so far behind me, you can't really see it there. Um, I was flying on Soyuz TMA-13, and I came down on Soyuz TMA-12. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, I, but I only found out after I was already training and had my patches made that uh, my own increment actually had its own nomenclature. I was VC-15, but my, match to, my, my own patch doesn't even say that on it because nobody explained this to me that because I was really up and down uh, with no one else was yeah there you go you got it no one else went up and down on the exact same increment as me so that's literally my own mission which <laughs> is vc 15 and the vc stands for visiting crew so any of the short duration crews the long ones are called expeditions so expedition 19 expedition yeah. 20 were going when i was up and then i was vc 15 was literally my increment huh. and they, they you got the you got the crew nomenclature there you weren't a crew participant <laughs> Oh, well, you know, the, the space flight participant, you know, so what's, what's interesting is uh, I still argue with uh, folks about this all the time. Uh, as I'm sure you guys are well aware, anyone who's flown privately, the six of us who've flown privately, people love to call space tourists. And, uh, uh, and there are people like uh, um, uh, Charles Simone who flew twice to space. So there's actually been seven flights, six people privately. Charles flew just before me and just after me, and he goes, I did go as a tourist. I said, I, he had nothing to accomplish. He was there to have a good time. He paid his way and enjoyed his time and doesn't mind being called a tourist. I, on the other hand, have a problem with it because <laughs> I actually built the company to take all of us there. I'm one of the co-founders of the company. I took on an incredibly heavy load of, of scientific and commercial work to help pay for my current flight and hopefully build businesses to pay for future flights. I was doing this as a professional endeavor, but just not a government uh, endeavor. So I consider myself a private astronaut, not uh, a tourist. But uh, NASA and Russia actually have a contract with each other that says anyone who flies that's not a NASA or a Roscosmos uh, career professional uh, or one of their other partner agency professionals, they will be referred to as spaceflight participants, not as astronauts. And so, uh, uh, which of course I find, uh, you know, uh, unnecessarily uh, 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 insulting. <laughs> exclusionary, exclusionary. Uh, but but interestingly, all the all the other astronauts, which are members of an organization, if you've ordered if you've orbited the Earth at least once, you're invited to join something called the Association of Space Explorers. They all call me an astronaut. And they're quick to point out that in 
in uh, the Association of Space Explorers in Russia, in, in, the, in the Russian language, is the Association of Spaceflight Participants. So actually, <laughs> so in, in the Russian language, they're not really trying to be insulting. That's really what they call it. In in Russia, uh, I just think in English it doesn't sound right. I mean, no, no. Frickin' call me an astronaut. Get over it. Call me an astronaut. <laughs> I, I'm I'm really glad now that, to know that uh, in all the tweets where I called you an astronaut, I was breaking NASA rules. That kind of yes. makes it really really on yeah. brand for our, our podcast. Tear down I those think. gates, <laughs> unnecessary gatekeeper. Richard, in That's every nice. one of your games you. that you develop for all of eternity from this point forward, is there there should be a NASA gatekeeper, like somebody that's named like oh. And well, yeah, ASA and is the gatekeeper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The NASA, yeah, NASA. Uh, but yeah, no, the uh, uh, that's a very, very good idea. And, and obviously, you're familiar enough with the games to realize that I do that a lot with uh, yes. people who 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 have, who have run cross uh, ways with uh, you know uh, people or companies. Uh, uh, and since you tipped it there, just for those who aren't familiar, uh, for example, there's a, another uh, long-term executive in the video gaming industry, a guy named Trip Hawkins, one of the founders of Electronic Arts, and uh, he and I and he and my companies have often come uh, you know, head-to-head on various subjects, and so Trip Hawkins, spelled backwards, is pert Snickwa, and in in my games, Pert Snickwa is the most nefarious pirate to ever sail the seven seas, and always shows up doing something no good, and eventually became a ghost pirate, and still literally in Shroud of the Avatar is haunting the lands. So you know, it's a uh, uh, he lives on. So pick your as, least as favorite do. NASA administrator, and then flip the name <laughs> exactly. around. Exactly. Oh, exactly. And I I have one. NASA actually uh, seventy two hours prior to my launch tried to. Uh, stiff arm me into not even entering the United States segment of the ISS, and uh, and when I got this, you know, letter from NASA saying you're banned from going in the U.S. segment, uh, please sign here that you agree. I was like, what do I do with this? You know, I can't even talk to lawyers. And um, uh, <laughs> you've been like and in my crewmates. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in quarantine in Kazakhstan. Yeah, exactly. It was 72 hours prior to launch. <laughs> <laughs> and and my my crewmates said, Richard, they can't stop us. They can, they literally could. I mean, we're all going to go fly together. Just ignore it. And uh, and so I ignored it for about twenty four hours. And then NASA came back and said, uh, if you don't sign this, we're going to cancel all the experiments that our people have been doing with you, even things that would help NASA. The stuff that's for NASA, they were going to cancel it all if I wasn't willing to sign this. And I showed that to my crewmates, and they went, Okay, we have a new plan. The new plan is that once we get in space. Whoever the ISS commander is makes the rules, right? It's the laws of the sea. And so even if you sign this, we can overwrite it in orbit. And I said, well, that's good, but I need to make sure NASA understands and agrees to that. And so I called NASA on the phone and said, do you agree that the ISS commander can overrule what I'm signing right here? And they went, oh, yeah, that's the, that's the way the rules work. And I went, put it in the contract, which they did. And so then I signed it. Send it back to him. We got into space. The ISS crew commander said, welcome to the ISS, Richard. Go back and do your business like you were planning to originally and <laughs> ignore that contract. And so, but but you're right. But I but I, there is, a, there, I, I won't name him here. Uh, I but, probably uh, have in the uh, past. I bet we might have the same <laughs> one. So <laughs> there's, 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 there's odds. Odds are you've interviewed them. And, uh, uh, but yeah, so uh, I know just who to put in future games. So uh, he's got to we'll be the gatekeeper. So. Gatekeeper, exactly. I don't think there's a lot of math necessary to go back and find out when your flight was, and then yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's easy. Yeah. That's easy. 
the, the crazy and, thing and about it's Richard Johnson, it's the Johnson Space Center, by the way. It wasn't not headquarters. It wasn't the administrator. Uh, uh, in always... this case, it was the head of Johnson. Okay. Meddling. <laughs> Richard's book is a must read for all space fans precisely because of stories like that. You know, there's I found it interesting on all parts because my day job is software. So there was, you know, the relevancy of your stories of the game development industry were relevant to my personal life. But the space side, you you go on at length in these stories that aren't the things that are going to be written about in typical media or uh, your your uh, entry on pooping in space was the most descriptive <laughs> and wonderful description of that, which is always like the jokey topic that everyone wants to talk about. But but the way that you wrote that entry is wonderful. And I know our friend Brendan Byrne will be pumped to read that. Um, and there's so many of these little like anecdotes that you kind of put throughout the book. One thing I'm curious about, you, you mentioned, you know, your relationship with your father throughout the book and the way that, you know, he was a, an old school astronaut on Skylab and shuttle. You mentioned, you know, both that you had a, a great relationship in terms of the space world, but you also said that in the early days, he, he wasn't like talking a lot about being an astronaut. Maybe it felt just like it was his job. I'm curious what, if, if that was something that was consistent through his life or did it change over time once he was out of day-to-day -day astronaut business and thinking less about office politics and more about space is did that change in his uh, take on things at all well you know fascinating you should ask that question because uh in fact it did change but qu quite late in life uh and, and i didn't get a chance to write about this in the book but uh so all through my growing up and even after we moved out and was a you know young to middle-aged professional my dad was the way i described in the book which was you know very much like spock Literally the unemotional, simple, logical, perfect, analytical person never, you know, said anything compassionate or heartfelt to anyone that I ever met, uh, family included. Uh, and uh, but this one time and we'd all been to NASA with him many times. All of us as kids had you know, gone on the NASA tour with my dad. But it was, you know, it was, oh, OK, here's the usual you know, work stuff. <laughs> and um, but my sister in law, Marcy, the wife of my old, just older brother, bought at an auction a tour of NASA given by my father. And so that's, that was, you know, she was the high bidder. So we all showed up and said, all right, dad, give it, you know, it's been, we haven't been back over there on campus in 10 or 20 years. Give us the tour. And it was completely different than any of us had ever experienced before in our lives. And we're not sure if it was the time that went by or because it was his daughter-in-law that had made this heartfelt purchase. But for whatever reason, Suddenly, for the first time, and I'm, I'm sure I was like, I was well, easily in my 40s already, might have been close to 50. Uh, my dad gave this incredibly passionate tour of all the NASA facilities. You could tell how much he really appreciated it, how much he, you know, was proud of it, uh, how much he felt about the trip itself during the trip. I mean, it was a, it was completely, it was like he was a changed human being, but it was, it was really quite, uh, quite recent. Uh, that that change occurred. So, but yeah, it did. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's really fun to think about because um, it, it kind of reminds me like there was um, Skylab has a little bit of a, a reputation. The crews that went to Skylab had a bit of a reputation for sort of eventually skirting around the rules a little bit, right? And so yeah, your your space <laughs> mutiny there did not start on your flight. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, even even little things like well, so what's funny is even though my dad, like I said, was Spock. Uh, there were these little clues that I had throughout my life that he somewhere there was something else in there. Like, you know, my dad, uh, uh, 
you know, there, there was a local uh, Chevy dealer that gave, literally gave cars to all the astronauts. And so almost all astronauts drove a Corvette uh, because it was a free car given to them by some local dealership. My dad, however, Not because there was a, a Corvette, you don't think? <laughs> there had to be some of them that were like, oh, it's a Corvette. I'm definitely driving that. Not because not it was free. <laughs> no, no, well, I mean, no, no, no. They got their pick of cars. I'm okay, just saying, okay. Of course, they picked the Corvette. They picked the Corvette. They said, the dealer said, what do you want? I want the Corvette. My dad said, you know, hey, hey, Owen Gary, what do you want? I want the station wagon. It's very practical, <laughs> you know. And so that was the free car that my dad got was the station wagon. But he bought from a different dealership a Mustang. You know, and we're like, okay, it's a nice car. And, you know, when I get old enough to drive to school and can borrow dad's car, I take it down and all the other kids go like, hey, you know, what's it got under the hood? And I'm going like, hell if I know. I'm sure it's whatever the standard, cheapest, smallest thing is that exists. And you know, they pop the hood and go, no, no, you know, that's actually a bigger engine and it's got a four barrel carburetor and all this kind of stuff. And going like, no, 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 no way. That's, they say, oh, that has to be special ordered. And I'm going like, no way. That My dad would never pay extra, never pay, never special order, anything like that. And uh, so I went home, went home to my dad and said, oh, hey, dad, explain the car to me because my friends have noticed. And he went like, oh, yeah, I special ordered that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he did. He had this he had this little streak in him that he kind of hid from the rest of us. <laughs> so um, I want to ask you some some questions about uh, like, so you're kind of uniquely positioned to to speak about this. We're seeing a bit of a, a change in how um, uh, commercial human space flight is going to happen right i mean and you were uh, on the ground floor of that with uh, space adventures and, and and building that up but you've, you're seeing a lot of stuff happen like just this year so spacex with their new crew dragon and boeing's coming up with starliner axiom is building this space station space adventures is suddenly like back in the news again where we're seeing you know some stuff happening with them uh, what's your, yeah what's your take on all this like, i want to kind of hear um you know how you feel about everything that's happening with all that well, first of all, I think that the commercial side is critical to uh, driving costs down, access up. Uh, I, I think, quote, tourism is only going to be a tiny piece of the market. I actually think the, uh, the you know, while that will help, um, you know, it's still going to be expensive. Yeah. And so, but, but, but what's happening is, imagine that you have an experiment you want to do in space. If you can imagine one, it's also really expensive to get to space. So if you have a good idea, but it's but it then has to face a phenomenal amount of cost, there's good odds that cost will reduce the probability of ever pursuing that idea. But we've already now seen, if you look at the peak price of putting either a kilogram into orbit or a person into orbit, you know, the peak price and frankly the peak danger was on the space shuttle. And so the space shuttle it was easily over $100 million per astronaut to send them there and about a one out of 70 chance of death if, to launch them into space. Yeah. Um, we're now, even at, you know, at the prices that you and I can go on the internet and book uh, a, a Falcon 9 launch, uh, and even though uh, you know, Elon, they haven't really published their commercial rates yet, but you can- Yeah, you've you got a different internet out. than I do, I think. <laughs> yeah, so you, you can figure it out. But it's gone from you know hundreds of millions to now we're down into the tens of millions. So it's already ten times cheaper, and Elon thinks he can get it down to the ones of millions, and that would make it a hundred times cheaper. And so whatever it is you're thinking about doing, you know, making some plastics, three D printing stuff, you know, pulling threads of fiber optic glass that are more pure in space, crystallization of stuff that I was doing when I was up there. When the price goes down a hundredfold, 
then it's a lot easier for entrepreneurs and people who have great ideas to think, you know, I can raise the money to do that. It's a, it's literally a hundred times easier to raise the money now than it was, you know, a couple of years ago. And so that's what's really changing. Um, you know, but but I, but I've been in the business not only of sending people to space, but the team that I worked with to do that. We also did other kind of extreme exploration companies. So we did something called deep ocean expeditions to take people down to the Titanic and other deep targets and kind of a spinoff of that is the one that's going down to the all the way down to the Marianas Trench, you know, now. Uh, there's another company called Adventure Networks International, which is the only company that operates on the interior of Antarctica. Uh, one of those, one of the guys that worked on both those also used to guide people up to the top of Mount Everest. And all of those, those trips that I just spoke of, they all cost somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred grand. And they all are arduous and they all involve some risk. Like, you know, if you think about climbing Mount Everest, it, inc it includes an incredible level of risk, much higher, frankly, than I'm willing to. Some, some risk, says misery. the guy who got literally stuck under the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but climbing Everest is literally far more painful and far higher risk than I am willing to undertake, at least at, at this stage. I, I can't imagine doing it unless I build a special quadra bike with an inflatable hypobaric chamber. But that's another story about my plan for how I might eventually do that. The Everest. only guy that will <laughs> ever climb Mount Everest in a mech. My money is on you, <laughs> exactly. for sure. That's it. That's it. That's the, that's the plan. And, uh, uh, but, uh, but until then, uh, the point of that was is that I've thought about price. I've, I've, I've worked in companies that have, that have been studying price elasticity of very expensive, somewhat dangerous, a little bit arduous, training-required activities. And so when you think about suborbital, which uh, Virgin and Blue are both about to uh, open up, you know, within months or a couple of years of the worst, uh, uh, I think that to the degree that they can get the price back under the $100,000 marker, then I think there's an ongoing business for that, just like there is for these other experiences. To the degree that it stays above 100 grand, then I worry that uh, they'll, they'll, they'll run out of market share. <laughs> Similarly, for going to orbit, I think that if anytime you're north of a million bucks, it's a pretty elite group of people. There's still plenty of them, but it falls off fast. Uh, but if you can get it down to one or two million, or even better, below a million, and with Starline, uh, with uh, Starship, uh, uh, Elon thinks he can get the cost of going uh, in Starship under a million dollars. He's been he's been throwing out numbers of a few hundred thousand dollars, and so if he can get people to orbit for that price, then I actually think tons of people would go. Most all of us would go. I mean, the 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 analogy that I uh, I use, and let's move it just out of orbit to Mars here for just a point of discussion. If you think about the people who moved to the new world from the old world, these were people who said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to America, and to do it, I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to sell all my my possessions because I can't load them up with me. Uh, I'm going to sell my business. I'm going to turn all that into cash. I'm going to buy some tents and take stakes and shovels and supplies and a ticket on the Mayflower or whatever it might be. And off they go to you know forge a pretty hard life in a completely new place. And so if you use that analogy for Mars. You know, a couple hundred grand, anyone on Earth could probably save that up. Any employed, any gainfully employed person who's going, I want to be born on Earth but die on Mars, hopefully not on impact, uh, you know, they can probably save up the money to make that happen. And so I think a lot will. I'm curious mm -hmm. about the, the more expedition side that you were talking about at the beginning. Um, is there something that's inherent to, you know, if, if, if it is a viable analogy for us to use and we can learn some lessons from that? 
is is there a reason that those expeditions are still as pricey as they are relatively and haven't come down so much? I know for in the case of the Titanic, there's legal issues and and a whole other environmental issue in terms of it, you know, degrading over time. But those expeditions are still in the tens of thousands. Why haven't they come down closer to the single digit thousands over time? I think the main reason is that they're they already started close to their floor. And here's my argument for where the floor is in in the usage of all uh, mechanized uh, exploration. Whether it's spaceships, submarines, ships, airplanes, or cars. All of them. If you think about driving your own car, you know, you go to a dealership and you buy a car, it's going to cost you some tens of thousands of dollars probably. A nice station wagon. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It might be 10 grand, 15 grand, whatever it is, your, your station wagon. My Subaru hatchback I brought off my brother in my first car, you know, I think I paid three or four grand, but that was back in, you know, 1970. So it's probably more than that now. But uh, the once you own the car, um, if you think about the cost of operating it through its lifetime, you, it, it, you, you, can, you can do a measurement off the fuel cost. And so let's suppose... Every time you put $100 worth of gas into it, which you know, I know you don't put, your tank doesn't hold 100 gallons, but $100 worth, but let's use this as an easy number. Every $100 you spend on gas, you probably spend another $100 on depreciation, insurance, and maintenance. And uh, uh, actually, probably $200. So the, the, the point is, if you take all your other costs plus fuel, it usually adds up to about three times the fuel cost. And and that's true for cars that you can, when you run out of gas, you go fill it up and keep driving. You run out of gas, you fill it up, keep driving. It's the same for airplanes. It's the same for boats. It's the same for trains. So all these things that you can just fill up the gas tank again and go, the depreciation of the high cost of the vehicle uh, is, is depreciated over many, 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 many uses. Well, the one place that has not been true until now has been spacecraft, where every spacecraft was destroyed on its maiden voyage. And so think about that analogy going back to a car or a boat or a train or anything else. If every time you bought your car for 10 grand at this, at, you know, at the dealership, you put in $100 worth of gas, and at the end of running out of gas, you crush it and go buy another car. <laughs> well, no one's going to drive very much. You know, the only times you're going to drive is when it's really, really essential to go drive. And so the that's why the price of going to space is coming down is because of reusability. It's a profound improvement on the cost. But in the case of the submarines, they're already reusable, right? You just charge them up and go again, charge them up and go again. And so you already were at the, the floor some time ago. And in fact, the trips I've made to Antarctica and the trips I've made down to Titanic and other deep targets, those have actually gone up in price in the 20 some odd years I've been doing them. Uh, you know, I think the first price I paid to go down to super, you know, 6,000 meters or so, you know, is like $25,000. Like now, the, uh, I, haven't, I haven't tried to buy one in, of, the, of that particular depth recently, but it's closer to 100000 And so that's actually gone up, but I think that's really just economy that's made that go up. Um, is that a factor, so not, though, where it's, come down. it's, you know, there, there are very few ventures that are offering those kind of trips with very high cost of honestly like operation it seems like it takes an entire ship's worth of an expedition to go out to one of these things so you're paying a fixed price of you know everyone being there working so it does that's feel correct yeah. but, but you're not but, you're, but even if there were two though you know two competing companies the price wouldn't come down much right. 
because both those companies will require a huge amount of infrastructure to make that happen. So I feel and like that's kind this, of what I'm saying is like, is that is that a good analogy for, you know, orbital space flight that we would see in our lifetime unless there's some crazy propulsion breakthrough, which we might be able to talk about as well. Uh, that that might be a pretty good analogy for the kinds of prices that we could see is tens of thousands at best. Or am I like making an assumption off of submarines no, that no, won't necessarily so, hold up? No, no, no. Yeah, no, here's the here's a way to measure it. So um, if you look at the vehicle I flew in, the, the Russian Soyuz, the Soyuz, you could also go buy from Russia. And uh, the price today is, I haven't priced it, but it's probably about $150 million they would charge you. If you go, I want to buy the Soyuz, I want to put my own three astronauts in it, and I'm going to go to wherever the heck it, I can take it. They'd say, sure, pay us the money and we'll give it. We'll give you all three seats. And it'd be about $150 million. For you, for NASA, probably <laughs> 450 yeah, probably, probably that's probably true, but uh, actually, the difference in price has to do with how much training and other extras you need. But but I think the pricing is actually pretty consistent. But the uh, but if you think about that, you think about okay, well, you're you're going to throw it away. We know that, but the majority of the mass, as you all know very well, is really uh, kerosene and liquid oxygen. So how much does the kerosene and liquid oxygen cost that goes into this hundred and fifty thousand dollar what will be trash soon? And the answer to that question is about $800,000. So it's $800,000 compared to a $150 million vehicle that you're going to throw away. And, but if you do the math of, of the previous thing I said, three times the energy cost. So instead of, instead of being $800,000, you can triple that. So maybe it's about $3 million. And that's about a $1 million a seat. And so if the Soyuz was 100% reusable, they could probably operate at about a million dollars a seat. And so when Elon throws this number around of about a million bucks for, you know, an eventual price of a highly reusable dragon, for example, if you could really reuse the capsule. And at the time, he was thinking of the first stage and the second stage. And right now they can't you know, do the second stages. But, but the, the point is the floor for chemical rockets is probably for orbital chemical rockets that only hold a, you know, a half a dozen passengers or less. It's probably about a million bucks. But the reason why he thinks he can beat that with Starship is because it holds 200 people. And, Just packing uh, them in. And so, <laughs> packing them in. And so, but that, but that economy of scale really does continue to push it down. And so he thinks he can get another almost order of magnitude or somewhere in that neighborhood by packing them in. Hmm. Jake's doing math. I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of math in my head now. <laughs> I'm not trying to... <laughs> so what do you think but, is going to be like... Like uh, like different about about the flights now. I mean, if, if they're if they're coming down and you're you're starting to take advantage of of, of Dragon and, and whatever's coming in the future. Like if you think about your 2008 flight, is it going to be? Are, is that that the market we're looking at? These sort of like you know one week trips to the ISS, or is there something something different that we can do now? Well, you know what's interesting about um, you know plans that, for example, Space Adventures has had. I don't know if this is their plan now, but uh, for example. Um, even if, uh, if there was a fully private launch that NASA or the ISS partners did not want to park at the ISS, I mean, that's a, you have to negotiate for that, right? You don't, you don't, you know, just cause I can buy a rocket doesn't mean they'll let me dock. And so one of the things we used to work on a lot was what do we, what do we sell people that, uh, that doesn't involve the ISS if we yeah. manage to get fire, have, have our own rocket. It would be very and, cool uh, if your customers got one of those letters from NASA. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, well, what's interesting is 
obviously the farthest humanity has ever been out in space right now is around the moon and back, right? That's three days away. That's a good distance away. And the Apollo 8 trajectory was particularly uh, important because it was very safe. It actually, you know, it's that figure eight around the moon and back. And the reason why that works is once they were lined up and launched towards the moon, they, by going around the leading edge of the moon in the direction of the moon's orbit, they would actually lose some energy. And so they had a free return back to the Earth. So once they were go headed in the right direction, everything else is on cruise mode, right? They could literally just coast and they would, they would at least come back to the Earth at the end of all that. And so you want, so there's that fly the we were talking about earlier. <laughs> but the, uh, uh, but, so a free return is, is an important safety procedure. Well, it turns out, actually, a gentleman by the name of Dennis Tito, he was actually the first uh, client of Space Adventures since I couldn't pay for the... I, I was actually supposed to be the first client of Space Adventures, that's when the dot-com crashed, and I couldn't pay for my own first seat. So we sold that seat to Dennis Tito. But Dennis Tito, who also, he did Mirror Corp and other things too. He was pursuing this as long and hard as I was, probably even harder. So if anybody had to beat me, congrats to Dennis. He is also an incredible engineer and mathematician. He loves to plan orbits. And he has planned this fascinating orbit where uh, you, you actually use the moon in a different way. You launch past the moon, but instead of doing the figure eight around the moon, you actually go up and you get a little kick from the moon further out into space. But then on the way back down, you go past the moon again, which slows you back down, and then you fall to the Earth. So it's another free return orbit, but takes you farther away from the Earth than anyone has ever been by a long shot. And so we're going like, hey, that'd be a fun, you know, that'd be a fun one to go do if you're paying if you're paying for a trip yourself. And you know, and the ISS is either boring because you've already been there, or they don't, they're, or they're, or the doormat's not out right now, so they're not <laughs> welcoming you. Uh, then uh, then let's go further out into space than anyone has ever been before. And, and that can be done safely, relatively cheaply, and, uh, you know, big fun. Yeah. And they've been looking at these, uh, these like, Gemini-style flights, too, where they go pretty high altitude just in low Earth orbit, right? Where it's, like, 1,100, 1,200 kilometers or something. That would be pretty awesome. Because I, I, I've heard from different astronauts that even, like, you know, like, shuttle astronauts that went to the ISS versus shuttle astronauts that went to Hubble. ISS is, like, 400 kilometers. Hubble's, like, 600 or so. I'm ballparking here. But, like, even that difference, like totally changed the way the earth looked and so yeah. doubling yeah, that you look again at the photos from be... the hubble deployment and you're like damn they were up there they were high yeah, oh, yeah. so yeah you know in fact uh i can't remember if this is in the book or not but um you know you so so i already told the story about how i um you know 72 hours prior to flight i was even i was actually worried if i was going to get my trip canceled out from underneath me and so you know the day we finally we're on the launch pad and in the final phase of the countdown, we're like, Whew, you know, at least we're going, I'm going. And then you take this amazing eight and a half minute ride and that's all it takes to burn. You know, you're sitting still on the ground, you burn the, you know, the entire 90% of the mass of this rocket in eight and a half minutes. The engines cut off, the thing heals over and you actually just tumble in space for a few minutes before they turn on any attitude control. And you might think that my first thoughts when finally being in orbit and finally seeing the Earth, it would be reasonable to think that my first thoughts would be, oh, wow, I made it to space. Look at the beautiful Earth down here below me. Hooray. But that is not what went through my mind. <laughs> the, first thing I, the first thing I thought when I looked out that window is, wow, we are not nearly as high up as I expected to be visually. 
I sure hope we're in a perfectly circular orbit because if we're not, we're going to be re-entering again in like a moment or two. And that is, that is really going to suck. And so, but, but there were no alarms going off on any of the equipment. All, every gauge was reading correctly. So I didn't say anything to my crewmates. Uh, I just sort of kept listening for alarms or other information. And after we tumbled a few times, I noticed the wind, the, the view out the window wasn't changing uh, in, a good, in a good way. Uh, then I could relax and go, oh, okay, yeah, we are. We're, you could relax we're, and we're go. safe. We're in orbit. You could lean back just enough in a Soyuz. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, barely uh, a little. My feet are up much. one inch more than they were a second ago. Yeah, you could use that little little pokey rod and, and touch the window. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Only, only, only the commander had that pokey rod. We didn't have it. Oh, okay, okay. It's a privilege to have the pokey rod. Is that in the? Is it's that in any of your games? That should be a weapon. The Soyuz pokey, the pokey rod. Yeah. No, that's a good one though. That's a good one. Can we make the NASA gatekeeper styled in my image with the Soyuz pokey rod? Pokey rod, absolutely, absolutely. There's got to be a better uh, name for it than pokey no. rod. Right? Pokey rod. You named it, man. Yeah. What have I done? But, oh my god. But yeah, but it, it's funny. I, you know, on a previous uh, trip out to a launch, you know, I, I've I've stood about 200 meters from the base of a Soyuz as it launched. Uh, you know, well what? within the well within the kill zone, and uh, and one of the things I got from one of the engineers there at the time is the key that they used to turn it on. But it was never explained to me whether that key was in the Soyuz or in Mission Control. It turns out it's in Mission Control. Uh, but it is there. There is a a nice little aluminum, you know, one toothed key that has to be inserted and turned. So you know, arm. Uh, the Soyuz prior to launch, apparently. 200 meters. I've never seen... Yeah, can we talk about 200 We gotta meters? go back what's, to that. What's going on there? <laughs> Were you in a, yeah, the so, blockhouse uh, or something crazy? Yes, well, so this is how crazy that was. So I assumed that when, when, I, when, I, when I agreed to go do this, when I found it was plausible to do this, I was, of course, very excited and wanted to go do it. But I also assumed that we would be in some sort of bunker or something... <laughs> You know, close. If you're that close, this is turning you, out you to would, be a, you would a like good have, story about Russia, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you you would like to have some defenses, and so we go out. We go out with this group, and we have to go through some checkpoints. And there's guys there with guards, you know, with guns and stuff. And whoever our guide is is convincing them that it's okay for us to be here, even though it's really not. And and we we go park the vehicle down by this bunker, and then we go down inside this buried bunker. And I'm going like, okay, well, somewhere in this buried bunker is going to be like a, a little place we can stick our nose up or a piece of glass we can peek through like on uh, Space Force, if you've watched the new Space Force. And uh, and that's what I'm imagining. But instead, we go down to like, this old dilapidated machine shop where like somebody's been sleeping down here. And there's like <laughs> cans of old cat food laying around everywhere and a few cats. And it's, it's just a trash heap. But there's no windows at all. And I'm going, well... What are we down here for? I mean, isn't there? Are we going to watch the launch? I mean, we're very close. I mean, we we really were only two hundred meters away, but we couldn't see it. And so I'm going like, what are we waiting for? What are we here for? And they said, oh, we're waiting for them to finish the sweep on the surface to get rid of anybody on the surface. And so we're hiding down here. And I was like, oh, okay. And so time is now ticking down, and we're like, we're getting you know five minutes from launch, four minutes from launch, three minutes from launch, two minutes from launch. And I'm going like. Are we gonna? Are we staying here? You know, you, you maybe ninety seconds prior to launch. I went okay now, and then we all get up and go out of the bunker, and we literally just stand in the grass, right in front of the rocket, 
as this rocket launches. And it is awesome. And so this, because you are, you know, if you didn't have ear protection on, you'd be hurting. If anything went wrong, you'd be dead. Uh, and, and the only reason that they wouldn't let us go closer than 200 meters is because it's actually outgassing things that would kill you if you were closer. So it's literally the closest you could be and survive during a nominal launch. And the way that they know 200 meters is the safe spot? <laughs> I, I don't know. You can imagine, but I don't know. I don't know for sure. That is wild. I'm going to be having nightmares about this story, I think. I, I mean, I've forward. heard from, I was at NASA Goddard a couple years ago, and, and somebody there that works on some of the different uh, climate missions was 800 meters from an H2. I think it was one of the original H2s. But he was inside, like you were thinking, inside a bunker with some glass, and he said it was still unbelievable. Uh, just, okay, that's a... Now, you I always thought like people in those in videos chest, from... Like... You've you seen like the videos of people on the... I think it's at the Sichang Satellite Launch Center, the one out of the valley in China, when they're like up mm -hmm, on the gantries mm -hmm. that yeah, are yeah. next to the rocket. Now, now we know how this happens. And how I found out about this is actually one of our handlers is a photographer. He was military and he was a photographer. And he's been in the gantry that is the electrical protection. He's been up in that during the launch. So the launch, the rocket launches right beside him. And he's got pictures there. And he also showed me some other pictures of launch. And I'm going like, how are you looking up at the bottom of this rocket as the flame is coming down towards you? And he said he was in the... There's not only a flame trench that funnels the fire out in one general direction, but there's some side tunnels. And he was down in one of those side tunnels, shooting up at the rocket as it launched. And then he said the pressure wave actually pushed him up and out of that side tube. So he got thrown out Surprise! of the side like tube. <laughs> yeah. And I going like, you are crazy. You are crazy. And, uh, but yeah, but this, but yes, people do that apparently in China, but also in Russia. And, uh, and as long as things go nominally, uh, you know, you, you'll survive to tell this tale, but, uh, but you know, they're, you know, people are a well aware, you know, I, I assure you we were, uh, even though I expected a bunker, I, I did know that we were, you know, going into a, a, the zone that is, uh, you know, uh, uh, you, that would not be normally accessible by the general public and shouldn't be the toasty zone. Yeah. The toasty zone. Uh, we do have an update <laughs> yeah. from the chat. Kerbal space Academy is here. Uh, and he says <clears throat> it is called a thing longer. The, not the pokey, what did we call it before? Pokey rod? Oh, a thing longer. No, the thing longer. The thing longer is from uh, 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 Good News, everyone. Uh, the television, uh, Futurama. Oh, okay. The oh, thing all longer. Right. Yeah, the thing longer. That's uh, from oh, the professor right. on Futurama. We're getting That's bad info longer. in the chat here. We got to. <laughs> yeah. Thank, thanks, yeah. Kerbal Space Academy. <laughs> oh, you're supposed to teach us stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, he, he gave us the clue we needed to fill in the gaps. So fake news, fake right. news. Oh, it's great. Um, we have one order of business that we need to talk about is that you own sublunar spacecraft. Um, I do. In fact, I am the world's only private owner of an object on a foreign celestial body. Now, is this a special order or is this right off the line like your dad would buy it? <laughs> uh, this was special order. This was uh, actually a, a Sotheby's purchase in 1996, I think it was. Uh, it was right after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, uh, a lot of uh, public and private companies over in Russia were hurting for money because the economy got trashed and the government wasn't paying basically anybody. And 
uh, um, a U.S. lawyer, a guy named Art Dula, actually went over to Russia to, he was helping them out on a variety of other fronts. But one of the ways that he also helped them, he said, look, you guys own a bunch of this space stuff and I can probably you know, help you find buyers in the U.S. And so they worked with Sotheby's and they put up this uh, Russian, you know, one of the first ever Russian space auctions. And most of it was the stuff that you guys now see on eBay or Sotheby's or Christie's or other auctions all the time, you know, whether it's a manual that somebody took with them to space or their glove or a boot or, you know, a, a thruster a or a piece space suit of... In, uh, our, in the case of our friend Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut, he's uh, <laughs> exactly, a full suit guy. Exactly. Exactly. All those things were coming for sale. But one item that came that was up for the sale uh, was Lunacod 2, the second Russian lunar rover that was put up on the moon at about the same time as the U.S. Uh, landings. And... Uh, and they had it projected to sell for I think uh, ten or twelve thousand dollars, and you know whereas a space suit at the time was costing something like twenty five thousand dollars, and I went and said you know I think that's worth a lot more than ten thousand dollars, but I actually don't know how much it's worth, and I would hate to. You know what I usually do in auctions is I seal a bid and put it in, and then you know cover your eyes and ears and let let it ride. It, this is the only auction I participated in live because I really just had no idea what I would be willing to pay or what I thought others might be willing to pay. Or what you in, the, in a panicked moment were, would be willing to pay. <laughs> That's right. Well, well, in fact, I, there was a second item I was bidding on that I did not win, and I'm glad I didn't. And that was a Soviet lunar sample, a, a, a raisin-sized lunar sample oh. that I bid way, way beyond my means, way beyond reasonability eventually chickened out and the person who I was bidding against made the next bid and won it. And I was going like, wow, I am so glad I didn't win that one. But, but anyway, that was the same auction. So I've, I've not done live auctions since either. But in, a, in the case of Lunacod 2, I purchased it for $68,500. But, but I knew even before I bought it that my whole reason to buy it is so that I could make the statement, I am now the world's only uh, uh, owner of an object on a foreign celestial body. And and being you know and you guys have probably all heard of like the lunar uh, this, uh, oh, um, uh, I can't remember what they call themselves the people who sell lunar property up there on the moon and they do it by just I look at a telescope I see a little spot and I'm gonna sell that track there because who can stop me and uh, but they don't but they don't really have any other claim other than nobody else seems to claim it so I'm gonna I'm gonna do it in my case I immediately followed my purchase with hiring a bunch of lawyers. So I've spent almost as much on legal fees <laughs> as I have on the vehicle to assert my claim as follows. That, uh, you know, while there really isn't particularly good law yet for the moon, there are treaties that give you a framework uh, uh, for, for ownership of property off Earth. For example, if you're on a cruise ship and throw a life preserver off the side and it washes up on an unclaimed island in the Pacific, you don't own that island. But on the other hand, if you wash up on that island and you build a farm and you put up a fence and you till the soil and you grow some some uh, some crops, international law says you do own that. And uh, you don't own the whole island, but you at least own the part that you have in active use. But if you leave the island and quit using it, it goes back to nope, you don't own it anymore. And similarly, there uh, is convention around even geosynchronous orbital positions, things that are mathematically describable spots in space. If you're the first one there and you continue to use it, you control it, you basically own it. But if you fall out of, if you're, if you lose control of your vehicle and it leaves that zone, then it's up for grabs for anybody else. 
And, and you probably are aware of the treaties where no government will lay claim, claim to property off Earth, but one that was not ratified was where they tried to ban private individual ownership of property off Earth. So that laid the door open for private ownership. And in the case of my lunar rover, uh, first of all, it's still in use. There are mirrors on board the lander and the rover that are used by modern observatories to do Earth-Moon distance detecting. So even though the it's not moving any further, it is still in use. So it's not junk. It's it's used. It has. Uh, so I don't think anybody would argue with I own the rover and the lander. I don't think anybody would argue that I own the dirt immediately under it. But the next assertion is that my rover tilled the soil for 40 kilometers. And so that 40 kilometer trackway, I believe I can assert, assert ownership on also. And then my rover also surveyed the land from a six foot high pedestal with three 60 degree cameras for everything that could be seen from a height of six feet along that 40 kilometer trackway. So I also claim that visually mapped area that my rover has mapped. So my claim is modest. It's only you know 40 kilometers by a couple kilometers wide, but that is my claim on the moon. And I actually believe it, it would hold up at least you know uh, uh, better than others uh, <laughs> you know, if it ever, it ever came down to push the shove. So you're welcome to come to the moon. I've even offered some ex lunar, Google Lunar X Prize people. I already said, you, you're welcome to come on my property but I will even pay you for some photos you take while on my property, but I'm also gonna charge you a pretty much similar amount for uh, for rental to be on that property. So, uh, we'll Jake, we've got little, our spot you know, for trade. the future lunar edition of Off Nominal. That's, yeah, exactly, uh, yeah. All right. Future headquarters HQ of Off Nominal, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We've been we on, we've of, been... <laughs> we have a lot of different future headquarters when you start Yeah, we've got one here. is that bunker that he watched the Soyuz yeah. launch from. <laughs> <laughs> That's one definitely on my list, but I'm eyeing up this spot on the moon as well. <laughs> okay, I have, an, I have another question, a line of questions here. Um, so we recently uh, got some news. Actually, we were, we kind of participated in some of this news um, that uh, uh, Tom Cruise may be filming a, a, a movie in space. Um, and it looks like he's working with Axiom and NASA a little bit. Uh, you also have the claim of the first science fiction movie filmed in space, which I watched True. last night. I watched it last night, and I, I think the quote that I said to Anthony was, this is the best thing I have ever seen in my life. Um, excellent, bro. It, Come on, excellent. It, it, was, it was great. Um, I, I want to kind of hear your take on that. What do you think about this uh, movie in space? Well, so... Uh, uh, first of all, any excuse to go to space is a good excuse. So for Tom, uh, you know, the, the, if you think about the production uh, budget of a blockbuster movie, you know, they're pushing a billion dollars nowadays for making a movie. And so to, hey, to put a hundred million bucks into a flight to space is plausible. Um, uh, you know, I'm not sure the results would actually be better than you'd get out of doing it simulated on the ground yeah. because zero <laughs> G simulations are pretty darn good these days. Uh, and your ability to control actors and cameras and other things is much better in a soundstage or on, even on a zero-G flight than it is actually in space. So, uh, but, you know, but it's fun to be there and knock yourself out. But, uh, but, it, is, but it is true, though, that, um, uh, you know, one of the things that I learned, and, and literally, even though I, it, you know, when I first heard this and he, they were claiming it was going to be the first movie ever filmed in space, and I was going, nah, it's really not. Uh, I really did offer in seriousness to offer some advice. Now, and I'm not the only person that could because like, there's some IMAX films that have actually been filmed in space and so they've learned some of these same lessons. But it, it's fascinating 
that when you're in space, it's like being on a three-dimensional air hockey table, right? Nothing sits still. Everything migrates. And so, you know, if you're if you set up a camera shot and you're supposed to start here and end here, good luck with that, right? You're, you, you, the, 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 the people and objects are going to go, you know, in completely different uh, directions than, uh, you know, would have been would have been planned. And so, you know, understanding that and managing it is is adds a level of difficulty and complexity to the shot. So I, I had offered to help uh, consult. Uh, strangely, no one is no one's contacted me yet. Uh, <laughs> Just us, although, actually. <laughs> <laughs> But what's interesting is uh, uh, Tom has a good friend at the Explorers Club in New York that's also a good friend of mine. So we actually have a one degree of separation that is uh, that has made the uh, the offer not just in jest but in actually in, in seriousness uh, because I think there is uh, if you're really going to go below that kind of money uh, up there, you really better get as much of this planned out as well as you can before you go do it. You're yeah. welcome to bring them on here. We can have the discussion live on air whenever whenever you want. <laughs> Great. All right. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to do a filming you in space. Let us know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I will. I will. If he calls me up and we need a place to chat, we'll do it right here. <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking a lot about that. Is that like the the logistics of filming in space and just like you know when they announce it, there's like a bajillion questions going in your brain. It's like, okay, is it is it Tom going up? Is Tom going to bring one camera person, uh, a camera person who is the director, a camera person and a director? What what's it going to look like? What kind of equipment? How much how much mass do they need for the camera? Yeah. I just like my brain explodes when I start thinking about it. All and uh, and then yeah, you, yeah, you bring up the and, simple question of just moving the camera around. <laughs> it was so hard. It was so hard to get shots. And 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 by the way, then you run into the things I ran into for filming Apogee of Fear on YouTube. Uh, and I also ran afoul of Russian um, uh, what's the word uh, superstition. Um, <laughs> oh shit! One of the, one of the things. One of the things you learn quickly in the space program in Russia is how much superstition there is. Like, for example, there are these rituals you go through that most of which are just kind of fun and you do them because they're mostly in my mind because they're fun. But they're things that were done since the beginning. Like, you know, the, you're, you're always blessed with some holy water from a Russian Orthodox priest. And you sign the door of the room you stayed in the night before. And you uh, you watch this one movie on the bus on the way out to the launch pad. You watch White Sands in the Desert because everybody does. And there's a place where the bus goes down below a hill so that nobody can see you. And everybody stops and goes and pees on the tire of the van that's taking them there. And you're going like, oh, these are kind of fun and fun. Or there's one where you... When you start your walk up the gantry to climb up on board, one of the Russian generals gives you a kick on the butt. And I had forgotten about that one until I got the kick on the butt. I went, oh, yeah, that's the ritual, you know? Um, but also, For you one second, you like were like, you... oh, shit, it's the NASA lawyer. He's back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the irony. Uh, but, uh, uh, but another one you don't do is you don't shake hands through a doorway. And that's on your ground base house. Or in space, you, when the hatch opens up and you might reach, you might think about, hey, hey, comrade on the other side, let me shake your hand. You don't do that. That's bad luck. And they really, really believe it. They won't do it. And so I went through all that. And I knew all that. But when Tracy Hickman, the uh, writer who's probably best known for the Dragonlance series of books, he, he wrote the script for me. And the reason why I asked him to write that script is he had also shown me a game proposal he had done some years previous about this... Uh, you called it Party Flex, this game you could play at home where you'd start with a script and tell your friends what their parts were, but no one got to read the script. All you did is said, okay, Bob and Martha, you go to the kitchen, here's your lines, say them, and now let's film the next scene. And you film the whole thing in order, and only after it's completely filmed 
do you rewind, put up, get some popcorn, sit in the living room and see what the film is you've all made because you shot it in order all on the first take. And, uh, uh, and so that I figured I could convince my crewmates to participate in because it would be done in a hurry. It wouldn't interfere with either their professional or personal time. But when I brought this up to my crewmates, because two of them were already in space before I launched, I said I didn't really get a chance to talk to them about it before I met them in space. And so I'm going, hey, one of the things I like to do is film this movie. And they're going like, uh, it's okay, yeah, fine, so whatever. Uh, can we see the script? And I showed them the script, and they said, oh, we can't participate. And I'm like, why not? And they said, as you know, the script shows that we leave the space station without you. And you stay behind. And they say, we think that's bad luck. Because already the previous two Soyuzes prior to our return have had uh, bad malfunctions that could have killed the crew. And we made a spacewalk to go remove some explosive bolts that hopefully have repaired that. But we think participating in a movie that, that makes fun of or has it's in some way implies that something might go off nominal... Uh, they they thought it was bad mojo, and so they literally wouldn't participate. So I had to rewrite it in real time while I was in orbit. And yet, the but anomaly you know, day one is still the title in the movie. Anomaly event day one, day six. Jake and I were pumped. Yeah, yeah we we ran a thing a year or two ago to figure out what our fan community was called, and we've determined they are called anomalies. So I felt we felt very right. excited to see that in the movie as well. Yeah. Yeah, the good. door, the no handshakes through door thing. Do we know where that came from? Because it sounds a lot to me like that was some Apollo Soyuz test project finagling that hmm. they didn't want to uh, have a handshake from a Soyuz to an Apollo, so they had to make the docking adapter and then do the handshake in there. Well, you know why the docking adapter was changed, right? To this, yeah, right? Because nobody wanted to be either end of the docking adapter. Yeah. And so the a, Russians a were, apparently wasn't going their way. Year. They wanted to uh, have a handshake in the docking adapter area. <laughs> yeah, apparently not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's some weird history there. Yeah, that's. Some uh, I think stuff. we just passed the date of that as well. I saw some tweets about that recently, so we're being mm. very topical. Yeah, totally. Uh, Jake, we forgot to do some homework or housekeeping up front. We did. Uh-oh. Yeah, we have- yeah. We, so we we have um so Richard well I'll give you a little backstory here but we actually uh, uh a couple episodes ago a couple yeah a couple episodes ago we uh, we kicked off a fundraiser um, that just finished up and so we wanted to share some of the results of that but this was for um uh, we 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 picked two organizations that are helping kind of fight racial inequality and racial injustice in space and in STEM um, so it was Black Girls Code and the Banneker Institute and so we had some some generous people that were matching uh, for us and uh, we finished that up and so um, we're so super excited because our listeners really stepped up uh we had like this awesome showing that everyone who's listening here is just an amazing person and it's just awesome so there's the results that we got there um you know with our matching funds thirty five thousand dollars raised for these two groups um so we wanted to make sure we took an opportunity on this podcast to thank the listeners for this outstanding work uh, i don't know anthony do you expect a number this high when we started this definitely 100 <laughs> not at all um and the cool thing is that the amount that we raised for Banneker specifically is higher than their listed figure for an entire student. So yeah, uh, we had John Johnson on last show. We'll probably bring him back next year because one student next year will be entirely funded by everything that we did over the last month. So yeah, that's super awesome. Incredible. That's phenomenal. Well, congratulations. And, uh, you know, I, I find these to be uh, very interesting and uh, important times we're in, you know, yeah. on this subject. 
and and I have to reflect even on my own career in the video gaming industry. The video gaming industry is another industry that is uh, is in need of uh, introspection and change uh, on the same front. And uh, and it's not for lack, uh, or at least I did not perceive on a personal level that it was not for lack of trying. I, I consider myself a militantly anti-sexist person. I wouldn't even let my wife take my last name. We blended our names because I wanted to make sure she wasn't giving up her identity, etc. Uh, and yet, you know, the number of female engineers I've employed through my career is low. The number of people of color I've, I've, I've employed through my career is low. And, uh, and I used to say uh, that that's because even though I would interview, you know, non-white geeky males, uh, you know, there were very few that came up through the system that I could employ. I mean, I, I, I really felt that way. Uh, but I was at a, uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, I was, uh, I was at a development uh, event at the University of Texas and had a much younger, group, younger cohort, cohort, a much more integrated cohort. And I was, I was giving my patent excuse for not having done better. And they called me on it and said the following. They said, so Richard, on your website, does your website show diversity in your employees and in your management? And I went, uh, no. Does, uh, does your call to action or does your call to come join us include specific statements about your lack of diversity or lack of having achieved that goal and your desire to overcome it? And I went, uh, no. And I said, well, how would you expect any of these people to be applying to you then if you are not, you know, admitting that or you know, fi fixing mm -hmm. the fact that if you don't look like us, why would we apply? And I went, wow, you are just so right. And so it, it just showcased to me how easy it is for those of us who even feel like we're hopefully at least not part of the problem uh, and hopefully are being part of the solution, how easy it is for us to miss these really yeah. important beats and uh, uh, and you know things like raising money, of course, are super important. Uh, but but having these discussions and making sure that everybody is really not just saying, "Hey, it's not my fault," but yeah, we're yeah. really going back and, and addressing why has why after all this you know a, a generation or two of talking about it, why has it not been fixed? And uh, uh, I think we all can play a part, not only with our cash, but with our actions to to really uh, move the world forward right now. Yeah, we we were talking about the same thing. Is that you know, at, you know, I can I, that story sounds so familiar to me because I'm the same way. I you know, I feel like I, uh, I I talk the talk and I and I do all these things. And then when all this stuff started happening, you know, we were looking back and doing some some retrospection, and you know, the, the people that we're bringing on this show, and and it was is definitely not as diverse as it should have been and so we're we're trying to fix that as well and um so i think it's it's good that we keep talking about it. and that's why i think it's really important to, to do the update now because it's we're you know we're about two months since the 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 start of the most recent uh, uh demonstrations and, and movements against this stuff and it's really important to not let this you know fade out and and, and burn out into some smoke and you know until the next bad thing happens like we can't let that happen right, right? and so um we got to keep working totally on agree. it and uh and i think that this is a, a good first step I'm hoping next totally year, by the time that the 2021 Banneker season rolls around, the pandemic will have faded a little bit. I'm hoping by then. I'm not super optimistic, but um, <laughs> if so, I'm hoping to drive up for the summer and hang out for a day or something because we will That'd have sponsored cool. yeah. one of the members there. So uh, it will be pretty awesome, too. But just yeah. the response on that is, is incredible. And uh, I just, yeah, I'm blown away. These, like Listeners yeah. are just, so. we bow down to you totally. Uh, should we do some picks? I think we should. 
Yeah. Uh, who wants to go first? I'll go first this time. Okay. That's different. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I usually <laughs> leave it to the end because I'm, I don't know why, but, um, so, uh, I'm going to go a little off book. It's not super space related. It's not space related at all. Um, but I've been obsessed with this new podcast. Uh, <laughs> so it's called, uh, the fall of civilizations podcast and it, they're, they're a long form. They're like two to four hour long podcasts. Um, and they just kind of go back into ancient human history and look at, uh, like the Sumerians or the Aztecs or, um, the, uh, the, the Romans in Britain and all these kinds of places. And they explore a civilization and they kind of outline what happened to it and why it's not around anymore. And it's just, it's just awesome. They have a Patreon. I joined up on the Patreon and everything. So um, what's that yeah. one called? It sounds really cool. That sounds like one I would enjoy too. So what's that one called? <laughs> yeah, it's called the fall of civilizations podcast. Uh, so it's a guy named Paul Cooper. Um, and he, he, uh, I think he does it full time and he just does these really heavily researched. He's got voice actors that come in. He's does these cool things. Um, like he had an episode with, uh, uh about Easter Island, um, Rapa Nui. Right. And, um, he had, uh, locals from the Island record some, some cultural music of the time. And they put that music on the recording. Like, it's just so cool. Some of the, the stuff that he does. So I've been, uh, I, I go hiking here in the, in the, on the weekends in the mountains in Vancouver and I save the, the episodes for hikes. So I, I go up to a parking lot. I don't have cell phone reception. I fire up one of these things and I walk around in the woods and it just really trips me out. Creeps so you it's out. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Richard, did you, do you have any uh, picks for us? You know, it's, it's uh, fascinating. I am a huge fan of the moth and I, maybe you guys already know that one well. So, uh, but, uh, you know, one of the things I love about the moth uh, and I didn't know, I hadn't even heard of the moth prior to being invited to participate in the moth. And my participation is actually what landed me my book deal. Because somebody who heard me speak at the moth was in the audience was a, an agent that said, you know, we got to go write a book. We got to help you write a book. And, uh, but, I stayed a, but I stayed a fan of it. Uh, and the reason why is, is that uh, it, it taught me that really everyone has a great story. Literally, and I mean literally everyone. And I think it's really easy for people, uh, and, and maybe this is even biased by people who believe that, that they're in some way special or have accomplished something special in their own life. And I think everybody's sort of proud of whatever it is they do in, ex in some way in exclusion to others. But when you participate in something like the moth, and once you start listening to the moth, you realize everyone's life journey is not just unique, but, but frankly compelling. And if you really understand who they became and why and some of the twists and turns that, that kind of molded them that way and uh, uh, that it, it, it really it makes you, I think, cherish humanity in a way that at least I hadn't uh, previously. And I'm a big admirer of their methods. And, and what I mean by that is when, um, when I signed up, when they said, hey, you want to come on the, on the moth and do a, you know, do a presentation? I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. I do this all the time. I'm happy to do it. And they said, oh, well, okay, that's great. But by the way, you have to show up three days in advance. And for three days, you will rehearse with our, with our producer and all the other presenters. And you will present with each other. It has to be exactly 10 minutes, not your usual hour that it takes you to tell one of your stories. And, uh, and at 10 minutes, the microphone, we turned off. So if you're not done, it's over. And, uh, and I'm kind of like going like, what? What am I signed <laughs> up for? Oh my God, this, this sounds nightmarish. I use my slides as the way I stay on, you know, keep the flow going. And to do it extemporaneously and memorize or not even, they don't, it's not even memorized. To keep it feeling right and tight, I was, I was totally intimidated. 
but then after I went through the process, I realized, no, it's, you know, they're professionals and with the other speakers, they really help you be so much better than you. It's the same story. It's just way better told. Uh, you understand the, you, you learn a lot about communications and how to do it well. Uh, uh, so I just became a big fan of their whole process. I became a fan of every other speaker and I listen to it all the time now just because I'm going like, there is not a subject they've covered, not a person I've heard speak that I'm going like, wow, I, I would like to know that person. You know, I'd like to sit down, have a chat, share a drink, and, uh, you know, and I'm confident, you know, that we would uh, enjoy sharing stories. There's a, there's a word for that actually. Hey, it's a, uh, it's called Sonder. You heard this word Sonder? Sonder. Yeah. S-A-U-N-D-E-R? S-O-N-D-E-R. Um, and it's just like the realization that every person you see has a, a, some story that's as vivid and, you know, complex as, uh, as you might imagine. It's that, that, and it, when you think about it times seven and a half billion people, you're like, wow, there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly there is yeah exactly and I'm, that's my new favorite word so i'm gonna uh, store that the go. fact that that was a word that was so short and not either dutch or german surprised yeah, yeah. me right like because usually it's like it's a word that yeah. means this entire paragraph that's probably yeah, dutch exactly. or german but yeah that's anthony what do you got uh, oh and that was themoth.org for anyone oh, trying to find org, it yes i'm fighting this fly right now this you're is, fighting a moth oh right my now? god i think i <laughs> A show or two ago, I said to everyone, buy a telescope, literally whatever fits in your budget. It's a great summer for, uh, other than the weather in the Northeast, great summer for astronomy. Uh, just this past week, I was talking to a friend that I worked with who is going camping next month up at a state park in Pennsylvania called Cherry Springs State Park, which is the darkest zone in Pennsylvania. Beautiful views in the Milky Way, incredible night sky. Uh, and he was like, hey, should I buy a telescope? I said, have you ever seen the Milky Way before? And he said, no. I said, do not futz around with a telescope. Buy a nice set of binoculars. Astronomy binoculars, man. These, like, sometimes I forget how much I love just partaking and looking around the night sky with some binoculars. For some reason, I think, you know, not like doing all the setup and then looking through a tiny eyepiece. Just being able to have a pair of binoculars that gets both your eyes going at the same time. It's so much more engaging. Uh, and I forgot, I have this pair of Celestron seven by fifties, which are pretty wide view. I use them a lot for like finding targets that I'm going to pick out with the telescope or traveling. Cause they're so small. I can just throw them in my bag. These were $35. Like I forgot <laughs> how cheap these were. I was like, Oh, this must be like a hundred dollar pair. $35, uh, for this pair of Celestron binoculars. And they are amazing. And I would highly recommend just grabbing some binoculars and looking around. If you want to spend some cash, the, uh, Canon image stabilized, binoculars are incredible i've got my dad has a pair they're probably 700 to a thousand dollars they're pretty expensive for the image stabilization but it's like you push this button and it blows your mind how it's stable really it's, yeah it's i didn't know that unreal. such a thing existed it's amazing image stabilized binoculars yeah the canon ones are really nice can i can i thought a, a kind of a thought and a question on that too between those two by the way i totally agree with everything you just said and uh, what's interesting is, is uh, I've had on my previous homes, I've had uh, observatories, and I have one planned in my, in my next Texas house as well. And in the shed that you're currently oh. sitting in, now that we've and talked about that. in the shed, that. yeah. There might be another, <laughs> we're talking about that, we're going to punch a hole here and get, a, get one going. But what's interesting about technology now is, it, it used to be that as an amateur, you're, you still, everybody's got to, fighting to get as big an aperture as they can, to gather as much light as they can, you know, to be able to see stuff. But it turns out that, I don't care how big an aperture you get. If you're looking just optically with your eye, 
the, the faint nebulas up there are still going to be pretty darn faint. But the great news is that even the a low quality webcam, when you drop that in an eyepiece, which you their webcam eyepieces now for everything, yeah, and you and and for free or fifty bucks you can get a, a, a piece of software to stack those images. You can get phenomenally good uh, space photography that is way better than you can see by eye with that little telescope that's behind you. Yep. That would be that little scope behind you would get better images by far than the instrument I had in my last home, you know, which was a computer controlled tracking device, but did not have an eyepiece, uh, uh, a camera eyepiece that could stack images. And so. That te simple technology has made it way better. Precisely why. I, so he's talking about this tiny four-inch. It's a Maxutov uh, little thing here. Because I've got an eight-inch Dobsonian that I keep out at my parents' house in Jersey uh, to get away from some of the light pollution. But I'm about to have a kid. Oh, I should mention that as well. I mentioned it on the other show. But mm. I'm about to have my first child. So people on Off Nominal, you might, you might miss a month from me coming up. Uh, we haven't determined what we're going to do with this particular show yet. Jake, Jake's got the keys. <laughs> um, but knowing that I'm not going to be able to drive out randomly whenever I wanted to have something here. Uh, but it's also, I've got this great, I guess I'm doing like pick time over here, Jake. This is way more picks than usual. <laughs> uh, so I with... I've got this, this mount is a Skywatcher AZ GTI. It is so tiny and it does tracking. And it can hold like 11 pounds on, on the dovetail mount. So this huh. this is small enough to do that. Refractors are as well, but it does tracking and all that. So I could attach the camera that I'm using right here and do some astrophotography off my back deck, even in light pollution zone. And like Richard's saying, get pretty incredible stuff. So cool. here's another and, and bonus. I presume, <laughs> and I presume even if that, ha I don't, I couldn't tell if that mount will take out the rotation. Oh yeah. But even if it doesn't, the software would. So but yeah, yeah, that'll take out the rotation so can, too. So you can yeah. unlock this and do it all by hand, and it will still maintain the tracking that you have set up. Um, but it yeah. will. There's a there's an iOS and Android app that you can you know connect via Wi-Fi, align it yeah. correctly on something that's bright and visible, and then it can track. Then it takes care of from there. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So it's phenomenal. It's picks great. Central, Technology Jake. is so Jake, cool. How's those picks, Jake? You like those picks? I like those picks, man. <laughs> <laughs> wow, cool. Okay. I'm just getting them all in here. Yeah. Richard, this has been an absolute blast hanging out. I feel like you are you are king of the people that Jake and I try to be, both in the realm of development and space nerds. You're like peak of both. So uh, <laughs> it's just been awesome to hang out for a while. Thank you so much for joining uh, us. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Please let everyone know where they can find you if they somehow have not come across you on the internet. Net. Where should we point them to? Uh, well, I would say I'm most active, although, you know, I have an account on most social media, but the one I'm the really active on is Twitter. So I'm at Richard Garriott on Twitter. Uh, beware, we're in election cycle right now. So in addition to games and space, I'm a little obsessed, read a lot, uh, <laughs> with uh, politics. And uh, my wife is actually a, a major fundraiser for the opposition candidate at the moment. And so uh, uh, beware that, uh, that you will, you'll see me flying that flag a lot uh, right now. But normally, but after the election, it'll settle back down into you know, my other main interests, which is space and games. So uh, you'll, get, you'll get everything. Uh, you know, and which, which actually just brings up the interesting uh, issue, which is one of the, in fact, in the book, which we've, we've referenced to uh, the uh, Explore Create that I wrote a few years ago, um, one of my beliefs is that if you're going to do anything, well, if you're going to do podcasts, 
whatever it is you're going to do as your vocation or advocation, uh, if all you do is research your immediate competitors, your immediate predecessors, all you'll do is iterate on yourself or what they're doing. That the only way to do things that are really original and really compelling and hopefully lasting and important is if you cast a net for understanding and inspiration that is as wide as possible, as broad as possible. And so, uh, 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 so I, I feel that my games include a lot of science, include a lot of astronomy, uh, include a lot of politics, include a lot of social commentary. And I periodically have people come to me on Twitter going like, hey, get off the politics. You know, why don't you go back to making games? And I'm going like, my games are all politics and all social commentary. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of already there. That's, that's, that's what I do. And, uh, uh, and so uh, uh, anyway, so yeah, if, you're, if you're interested, come see me on Twitter. Uh, uh, drop me an email. If you go to my Richard Garriott uh, website, uh, I think this is richardgarriott.com, uh, there's a contact uh, message there too. I'm responsive pretty much to everybody that writes in. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to chat. Cool. Jake, what have you been up to? Uh, I'm super busy. Uh, you <laughs> you know, not my, have a lot going on, right? <laughs> oh my god, yeah. So, so Richard, I, my my main podcast. This, this is our our fun kind of side gig, but our, our main my main podcast is about Mars exploration, and it's a it's a busy couple of weeks for Mars. Like we got to say, so <laughs> yes, it is. Um, the United Arab Emirates have launched. Uh, Chinese have launched. So we're two for three. Perseverance, the uh, main event coming up. So um, we will have a live stream event that I'm doing with that. Uh, I have. Uh, all these details aren't quite out yet, so you're getting a sneak preview here, YouTube. But um, my good friend Tanya Harrison, who is a professional Martian uh, planetary scientist, she'll be co-hosting with me on a live stream as we watch Perseverance launch. We have some cool guests showing up to talk about different parts of the mission. It's going to be really exciting. So I'm pretty busy doing that. Uh, so I'll keep an eye on our, our Twitter, we Martians Twitter for that. And uh, it's going to be really fun. I'm excited. And then you'll sleep after that. It'll take and, a then, and then I'll finally sleep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mar Mars is such an exciting place right now. You know, it's it's so hard to get to. Um, you know, not only the launch is really cool, but the landings are even cooler to watch and keep you know bite your fingernails for. Uh, but uh, but I, I think Mars is you know, clearly the most important uh, space target in in our next decade of activity. So uh, music yeah, to Jake's ears. Yeah. Yeah, let's yeah. let's Preach. get there and let's get there as fast as we can. Let's do it. Anthony, what about you? Oh, I've had some good interviews this week on uh, Main you Engine have. Cutoff. You've been busy. Yeah, we did a lot this week. So Caleb Henry, who's a writer at Space News, came on to talk about there's like a lot of satellite drama right now. The FCC is fighting with like everybody. So there's a, a ton to dive into. Uh, and then I talked to two members of Astrobotic, who are one of the first three companies <laughs> that are sending landers to the moon next year we're a year away from their first mission right now yikes uh so they might go see richard's rover i don't know exactly but i mean they're not we've but... talked about it we've, we've talked about <laughs> they it should we've be. talked about it yeah <laughs> so that was fun we talked a lot about you know the way that they're they've got two different landers because they're the ones flying the big viper rover that's going to the south yeah. pole in a couple of years so we talked a lot about like small landers big landers payload management a lot of nerdy stuff so it's been this is a good time for space which is exactly we why know. I'm having a kid right now, so I can take a month off and ignore all that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Astrobotic is also working with DHL to deliver little packages to, to, to the moon. I was looking at that. And, I'm thinking, uh, Jake, I'm thinking we should send some stuff on this rover. It's a yeah. couple hundred dollars. Yeah. So, is it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Stickers? And I actually worked with, I actually worked with them on a, uh, an advertisement, a, a marketing campaign, because I, and, and for Astrobotic for the moon, 
but I had also worked with DHL to actually deliver a package to the ISS. So that was one of the commercial activities I did to the ISS was I actually delivered a DHL package from <laughs> Earth to the ISS and then took a different package from the ISS back down to Earth. So uh, in any case, yes, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a fan of DHL and, uh, uh, and Astrobotic because, because I agree, it's, it's hard to get personal things up there. And by the way, if you too want to become one of the private, the only private owners of an object on the moon, Now's your chance. Get in there. Start claiming territory. Yeah. Come on. Jake, we got to put something on this lander. Let's okay. everybody right. Let's send talk. us your ideas for what it's like. They're very small. They're a couple inches uh, that you can yeah. send up, but yeah, think, we should definitely do coins. it. Think of yeah. things the size of coins and postage stamps. Small Maybe stuff. we should make like an off nominal challenge of, coin or something. Ooh. Yeah. See, that would work. All right. We're okay. going to do that. All right. We're going to talk. We're going to talk. <laughs> Thank you so much, Richard, for hanging out with us. You've of been course, blessed. my pleasure. No, I'd love to come back anytime. So, uh, thank you. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. End of test.